a reminder that what is to follow might be triggering to some listeners. It was May 5th, 2014, when we were told that our son was not likely to survive. Our son Gavin was two and a half when he was playing in our backyard on a swing and he let go. He fell off and he hit his head. He lost consciousness. He began having a seizure and he quit breathing. And we called 911. And the Carmel Fire Department came right away. You could tell by how quickly everyone was moving that it was very serious. When we got to the hospital, the doctors discovered that Gavin had sustained a near-fatal traumatic brain injury. A few years after the accident, Amanda told Gavin's story in a video to raise money for one of the facilities where Gavin had received therapy. It's a story we introduced you to in our last episode, and one she's told many times. She says she'll tell it to people at the grocery store if they'll let her. But behind Gavin's story are a lot of other stories. Stories that even self-described oversharer Amanda doesn't talk about. In fact, it's something the family hadn't talked about openly until embarking on this project. Because alongside the traumatic injury Gavin experienced, his family was traumatized too. When the bubble around the Swearingen's burst, the one that tells you bad things don't happen to good people, it rippled through all of them. Parents, sisters, extended family, friends, co-workers. They didn't know Gavin's trauma was the start of their own. Welcome to Threads Unseen, unraveling a story of trauma and exploring the ties that separate us, hold us together, and ultimately determine our connection to one another. I'm your host, Sherry Fella, CEO and founder of Bloombase, Brad Swearingen's executive coach, and your narrator on this journey of unraveling trauma. It's an honor to be on the journey with the Swearingen family and their sharing this story, and I believe a sacred space for all of you listeners to experience alongside us. This is episode two, Shouldering the Load. You know, if I were to make a poster of like words that make me think of a man, it would be like powerful and helpful and magnanimous and generous and playful and fun and selfless. Jess Leland is one of Amanda's oldest and closest friends. Yeah, I mean, do you know that we call her Captain? No. Yeah. Makes sense, though. <laughs> I don't even know how you're going to describe it. <laughs> Her nickname is Captain because she just, she's the captain of the ship. She's the captain of all of our ships <laughs> in her family, in our little group. So I think it comes naturally to her to be that life force and to be the leader and to be powerful. In the immediate aftermath of the accident, a time the family calls the acute period, Amanda went into full captain mode for Gavin's ship. A community rallied around the family. Moose is her third. By that time, we were close enough that her kids call me auntie. I have to interject here. Moose is the family's nickname for Gavin. Indeed, I was told almost no one calls him Gavin. 
Gavin was born five weeks early, but he arrived full-sized. The tiny preemie clothes his mom had bought were woefully small. He was a moose. So when she heard Moose was in the hospital, Auntie Jess needed to do something. So I just remember needing to leap to action somehow. I also am the dog person in the family. So it's ridiculous. But my first thought was, I got to go get Cooper because he can't be home by himself (laughs) if they're in the ER. So it was just like, that's my job. My job is dog lady. And I go get the dog. Jim and Jenny Toller, friends through the Girl Scout troop that Amanda led, also stepped in to help. I think we didn't know the severity of it until a few days in. So then that was just kind of like a, oh my gosh, what's going on? When you guys started doing meals and helping out as part of that too. Well, I mean, that's what Midwestern moms do, right? We're like, oh, you need a casserole. Someone's in the hospital. You know, we can't go in and be a doctor consult or anything like that, but we could make sure that at least they they weren't living on hospital food and we could look after the other kids, you know, make sure they get where they needed to be. And if there was a program that needed to be attended, we went to the program. So this community, no one's from here. Everyone's moved here because of the schools, because of business, because of jobs. There's very few people that we know who are from Carmel, Indiana. So we all kind of moved here a little bit without our support systems and we become each other's support systems. Among those who also sprang into action were Brad's work colleagues, Denny, Janice, and Anne. You met them in the last episode. I think that day, several of us went to the Riley Hospital right away. I have a daughter and a son as well, and it, it just immediately, like, you just want to go help, and I don't know, it's a feeling of helplessness because you can't. We all found a way of getting the word to him that that uh, everything was, don't worry about this, don't worry about work, mm-hmm. worry about life. Again, I could identify with something like that happening. I don't remember talking to him more than 30 seconds. He came down and just said, I think I communicated that we're all here. Don't worry about anything. Do not worry about your phone. Don't worry about emails. I remember specifically telling him that because I know how we worked. (laughs) And then I was concerned because in that moment, his life had changed. Their life had changed and always. And it was palpable and I still remember it. And it's been a lot of years. It was like this expectation that, uh, you know, at the time of the accident that this is happening, that you, you can't break. In fact, I think, you know, the first couple of days, my, my dad was out of town on, on business, and it was like his worst fear was that something would happen to his kids or grandchildren while he was away and he couldn't get back. And he, so he could, really couldn't get back till the next day after the accident. And I just remember shouldering it all that period of all the stuff that's going on in the first 24 hours and, like, not showing emotion. The moment he got there... <clears throat> I just, like, it broke down. I started just crying into into his shoulder, really, for the first time and letting it all out. It's almost like you could kind of transfer that burden in a way. And so, I mean, my, my dad, my both parents are, are wonderful. And I was, I was grateful for that moment that he could be there. But, yes, it was just, I don't know, this, like, implicit expectation of what you're supposed to to shoulder. I'd say one of the things that I learned that was not helpful, it's not anyone's fault, was 
as you learn from looking out at the people around you that are going through things as a parent, especially as a father, you learn this like responsibility of being the patriarch of when something's bad happening, you have to shoulder that and, you know, not show weakness, (laughs) you know, in, in some sense that maybe getting help is weakness, not necessarily directly, but just like this idea that you have to kind of shoulder it all and not show any signs of it coming out. Not show any signs of it coming out. Here we have Brad, the patriarch, the stoic leader. These words are how Brad describes himself, and yet he can't be those things. And that is the beginning of the threads breaking, losing the core parts of himself, his foundational belief system. Man, when your foundation is gone, what do you stand on then? Brad and Amanda had experienced trauma, but what does that mean? I went to talk to Gloria Hood, a licensed social worker and marriage and family therapist. Amanda's therapist, actually, who specializes in trauma. It's unusual for a therapist to be willing to speak openly about a client. It takes a lot of trust with the client and with us. We were so grateful she agreed to our unusual request to participate in this podcast. So, Clara, for me, I would love, if you don't mind, just defining what is trauma. You know, we're hearing that word more and more, which is, I hope, normalizing, helping. But what is trauma? How do we define that? I'd like to give you a number of different definitions to give us a few different perspectives. So the first one will be from Bessel van der Kolk. And Bessel is from Boston. He's a psychiatrist. He's an author. He's a researcher. And one of his most famous books is The Body Keeps the Score. And Bessel describes trauma as an event that overwhelms the central nervous system, altering the way we process memories. So what that means is that there is the story of what happened during the trauma. And then more so, there's the current imprint of that pain, horror, or fear that lives inside a person as they go through the world. So then another definition comes from Peter Levine. Peter is a Berkeley researcher, and he has a number of wonderful books. But Peter says that trauma is how we perceive a situation as a threat. And when we're unable to complete a satisfactory fight, flight, or freeze response. So it starts with the perception of a threat. And he goes on to say that the nervous system is designed to keep us psychologically intact when we're unsafe. And sometimes there are events that happen that override the nervous system. We're not able to get away. We're not able to freeze and stay safe. We're not able to fight. And then Our diagnostic manual, the DSM-5, will give you the definition that trauma is when a person is exposed to death, threatened or felt, serious injury or actual or threatened sexual violence, direct exposure, witnessing indirectly or having it occur directly to you. So that's probably where people get more the idea that it has to be something that is extremely serious. But even in this definition, there's the witnessing of trauma the being a secondary victim, we might call it, and someone who feels as though there was a threat to their life. Okay. 
And so if we're unpacking that trauma, what makes the situation that Brad and Amanda are experiencing, and I say that in current tense because I understand it's still a process, how would you describe their trauma? They're not Gavin, but what is the trauma they experienced? Well, I mean, there's there's, yeah. uh, there's obviously different layers to that. Yeah. And one is that the trauma that Gavin experienced, his age at that time, he was so young. Mm-hmm. So to be a toddler and to have your skull literally cracked open is very, very scary for parents. And so the all of the medical events that transpired after that, there were little traumas on top of the big trauma through medical events as they were not sure if he was going to live or not, and then not being sure what his life course would be, what his development would be. And so for a child that starts out with a trauma that young, it's going to impact their development when it's a chronic medical issue. And so there can be traumas at every step of the way. As people evaluate your child, as people tell you what you can and can't expect from your child, as well as an ongoing threat of further medical difficulties, as we've seen with them. I don't even know how to word this question. There's so many layers of that. The trauma that's already happened, the trauma of knowing more trauma might come, the trauma that is constantly unfolding. How do you even begin to unpack that, cope with that? What is the starting point in that for someone like Amanda? Right. So... It might be helpful to talk a little bit more about post-traumatic stress and some of the ways that it it manifests. Okay. So we will have intrusive symptoms, avoidance symptoms. We'll have negative effects on how we think and on our mood. And then we'll have alterations in how someone is activated and aroused. So if you think about the nervous system and the intrusive systems can be the recurrent nightmares, the intrusive thoughts, uh, the flashbacks. Those are things that are intruding. They're coming in when you don't want them to, but there's reminders everywhere about them. Mm. The avoidance can be when something is a reminder, but instead of being aroused and activated by it, somebody shuts down, avoids it, can go into depression, kind of the running away from the reminder, Mm -hmm. and lots of things can happen there. And then the negative cognitions and mood, you know, certainly we have a lot of anxiety, guilt, depressed mood, fear. Everybody else goes about life as though nothing has happened, even though there might be many, many people who come in, swoop in and help. You see their children running around without a helmet on. They're not in the hospital with their kid all the time, and you can start to feel kind of isolated and disconnected from life as other people are doing it and as you used to do before. So picture that. The foundations were being gutted by all of these waves. No foundation and wave upon wave. Unrelenting. Brad feels this failure as the patriarch, and Amanda is holding steadfast to her captaining of Gavin. So the experience looked very different in different members of the family. We start with Brad's experience. As an engineer, you're trained and quite gifted at diagnosing critical failures and fixing them. Yes. So now you're here in life with a critical failure. 
Okay. And you can't fix it. Is that what played into some of the shouldering or some of the hardship or not even connected? Yeah, it it could be. I mean, I remember in the early days of the hospital when they said Gavin wouldn't walk again or only his left leg would work. Like I had drawn up sketches of this is how you could get the right leg to repeat the left leg and, and walk again. And So the engineering piece as a strength was trying to take over and fix it. Yeah, I mean, certainly there was probably a role there to play of this problem in life that all of a sudden can't be fixed, or at least fixed in the way that you think it's going to be fixed, of return to what was before. Wherever you go, you are, so that impacts all your relationships. So I want to go through a couple different pockets of your relationships. Yeah. So the accident happens. How did that impact you as a leader at work? Short-term not great. I, I probably came back too soon. So when the accident happened and, you know, we're staying in Ronald McDonald House and, you know, there's periods where you're staying awake for 48 hours watching heartbeat monitors and there's periods where you just um, don't know what's going to But you eventually have to get sleep. And um, I remember that feeling you have when you wake up from a nightmare and you're relieved that you're back in your bed. That acute period you wake up to the nightmare if you're able to get to sleep. It's just this horrific time. As a leader going into work, I wanted to go back probably earlier than I, than I should have. And I would say there was a dark cloud that came over the leadership and people left and, and things. Eventually, once I started getting help people, it, it turned out okay. So coming back to work, I think I was trying to put on this strong face of, hey, here's strength, I can get through this, I can do work as well. I think the, if I'm honest with myself, I was you know, trying to get back to normal faster than, I was still chasing what was the normal before and trying to find parts of that. And that wasn't super helpful. Here again are Brad's colleagues and friends, Denny, Anne, and Janice. Frankly, he was a mess. He was a mess. I was very concerned about him personally. A lot of what we're talking about within the culture, Brad helped build. So it says a lot to his integrity, respect. He was respected, although him and I butted heads quite a bit. There was always an element of respect between us. I think that's what kept us together in the ups and the downs of the professional relationship. I don't think I ever said, well, you're a mess. He was distracted, of course. He wasn't sleeping. He was trying to manage work and his family and his, I'm sure, his relationship with his wife and everything that had happened. I, I concur with all of that. He was a mess. I think he, being Brad, wanted to be as effective when he came back as he was before the incident. And so I think that if I had to do that part over again, I might slow him down as far as bringing him back in because I remember one particular <laughs> incident where he blew up and it was in a pretty big meeting, pretty large meeting. So those kind of things tend to get found out outside the room. And so I think that's the kind of thing that you have to handle delicately. I know it was because of all of the pressures. I mean, the programs were pressure enough. 
programs plus what was going through in his personal life was more than he could handle at that particular moment. I felt badly that it happened. I just felt like I could have handled that one a little bit differently, maybe even before the incident happened. I don't think he knew how to articulate what was even happening in his skull, as I would say, or in his heart. I mean, again, it's, I don't want to stereotype him, but it is a man. Like, he's not going to be expressing his feelings. Mm-hmm. It's He's taking it all on. He has a wife, two daughters. I've learned recently how they were dealing with things. I didn't really kind of think about that yeah. back then, being stoic in that way. But obviously, physically, it was showing itself where maybe, well, obviously, he could not recognize it where everyone else could recognize it. Worse than being a man, he's an engineer. Right. Yes. You got, yeah, both of those, right? Yeah. Very analytical, very internal. Yes. Problem solving a problem he couldn't solve. Right. Yeah. Yes. I think there was some expectation of certain team members or maybe a little bit myself that you want that old Brad, but you're not living the day-to-day he was living, and he wasn't aware of how to probably deal with whatever was going on. I could, I could relate, but I couldn't relate. I think at the time, Brad defined a large part of who he was by his job. I remember asking him, I don't know, some number of months, have you and Amanda been out? Have you gone on a date? And he just said, no. no. And Brad, I think, couldn't imagine that he could leave the house, you know, in the evening, because what if something happened? And to be fair, things happened over the course of the first several months and couple of years, probably. Mm-hmm. Unexpected things. Well, I think he struggled with feeling any joy because of what had happened. Because right. that goes right into the guilt. Family friend Jess Leland saw that same hurt. It was harder to relate to Brad then because I think he was just so overwhelmed with guilt. Just impossibly overwhelmed. I don't know how he lived with it. Just awful. He kind of shut everything out. And who could blame him? It's just awful. Brad was a mess. Here we have this analytical problem solver who has all of this mastery, and he cannot use it. This problem, this trauma requires what he hasn't yet mastered. Meanwhile, Amanda was trying to bravely captain on but she was taking on water. And I remember thinking, I have to be here because I'm the only one who can keep him alive, which is an insanely heavy weight to carry. And it wasn't true, right? Like, I didn't need to hold all of it, but, like, in my head at the time is, I have to stay awake so I can watch him. I have to make sure, you know, even now, eight years later, when I sleep, I sleep and listen. I can still hear him all of them. I can still hear all of them in my sleep. How did you keep you safe, Amanda? I don't even know how you describe it. And how did you take care of Amanda? Oh, I didn't. (laughs) That's, I mean, that's just the truth. You know, you go into survival mode really quickly and you start to make hard decisions and you, I am a calm, under pressure kind of person, which helped, but I remember just making all of these decisions and things that I really knew nothing about, but we just, we just did it. Right. So early on, my focus became 
taking care of him, taking care of Gavin, making sure he had everything he needed. I was his advocate. And what I didn't realize is that I was just, I was falling apart. I absolutely just began to deteriorate because I wasn't taking care of me, even though people kept telling me, you need to eat, you need to sleep. And I would never leave the room. I would never leave Gavin's room ever. I would leave just long enough to shower and come back. And what I didn't realize is that I just was falling apart. And I had a night where he was not doing okay. It was it was fairly early on. And he, Gavin started seizing and they couldn't get it to stop. And at that point, I think I had been up for 48 hours. It was, it was bad. It was just a bad time. And they had to give him so much medication that his heart rate was so slow, it wasn't even registering on the monitor. And so I just sat like inches away from him, watching his little body breathe. And, and then he would stop and he would stop breathing. And I would, I would yell code blue in the hallway and I would hit the nurse button and they would all come in and they're like, he's, he's breathing. It's just really shallow right now because his, you know, they had to give him so much medication. And then it happened again. And I think probably by like the third time that I, I screamed code blue on my son and got, you know, and Brad's sitting right beside me and we're, we're just, this feels like the darkest moment. I think by like the third time of this happening, I just collapsed on the floor. I remember standing up and everything just went black. And it was because I hadn't slept. I hadn't eaten. I hadn't left this room. And I, I, I vaguely remember like my body going like, we're done. And Brad told me later that like I did, I just, I passed out on the floor. He picked me up. He put me in the chair, you know, covered me up and he stayed with Gavin. That's a turning point in my head of where even I was like, all right, I'm not invincible. I asked Amanda's friend, Jess, what these times were like. Did you get to a point where you were concerned about her? Right. Was I ever concerned for her? How do I say I'm always concerned for her? Um, because I know how selfless she is. And I know, I mean, maybe I don't know, but I, I know a little bit about the anxiety that she already lives with without having your son on life support. So I don't know that I would say I was like ever concerned necessarily about her, but just in general concerned about not letting her live in it. I just remember that being a big goal of mine. We just need to go for a walk just around the building. We're just yeah. going to walk around the building and we're going to listen to the birds and then we're going to come back. But you can't live here as much as you want to. I gave myself permission to sleep. I'm going to have to go sleep in the Ronald McDonald room, at least occasionally. Eventually we would allow 
family members or whatever to come and sit. A friend of mine would come and and babysit, which, I mean, the nurses were obviously taking care of him. It's just we were never okay that his bedside was without someone. And that was just kind of our philosophy. But I did start to take walks outside. I did start to go get some air. People would bring the girls up, and, and we would visit down in the lobby. I think she told me this story recently of him asking her, did you and daddy have to go to work or how long was I in the hospital by myself? And I remember her saying like, you were never in the hospital by yourself. As Gavin was fighting for his life and his parents were struggling just to get through the next moment, Gavin's older sisters were also experiencing their own version of these events, their own traumas. Allie, the oldest, was seven and Kenna was just four at the time of the accident. When we spoke, Allie was now 15 and Kenna 13. This experience of trauma has made them much older than their years might suggest. They began to let us enter their story. I remember we ran barefoot. Kenna agrees. That is what she remembers. That is what sticks out. That is the one thing that, like, every time I think about it, I can feel running on the road without shoes on. And we had all these people, and, like, we are playing with the dollhouse, and then they called us downstairs. And it was Miss Abernathy, actually. My parents were with Gavin. And so Miss Katie, she screamed our name, and we came downstairs, and she said, you don't need shoes. You can just go to our house. I remember being told almost nothing, which my parents have later said was to shield us, but that they also regret that decision, which I can't speak for them, but we were just talking about this and how— um, Nobody knew anything. I don't know how to explain it. Um, they knew very little. So by the time that passed through, like, the filtration of what do we tell everyone else, it got to Ken and I, and everyone was like, they're too young. Gavin had an injury, and he's in the hospital was pretty much what I got. Or your parents are going to stay with Gavin for a while, but you get to come to Grandma's. So we ended up going to my grandmother's house to live, which she lives about an hour away. So we did miss we did miss school for a good. Oh yeah, we missed like two weeks. We didn't miss a ton. It was it was like two weeks I think of school, and we just lived with her. But then, like, we didn't have any contact with my parents. I'm interrupting Allie here to make an important point. The fact is, Allie and Kenna were away from their parents for days rather than weeks. We know from our conversations with Gloria Hood, the trauma affects how a memory is stored. Age affects how memories are stored, too. And if you remember, Allie was a little girl at the time of the accident. This experience was profound for her and will continue to be. So she remembers it differently. Her memory tells her it was longer because it feels longer. And that matters for how she's processed all of this. Yet another layer as we consider what Allie, Kenna, and their parents have been unpacking in these years since Gavin's accident. Now, back to my conversation with Allie and Kenna. Nobody told me what was going on. I think that was one of the biggest things I remember was nobody thought to explain to me what was happening. I bet. I bet. Kenna, how about for you? I agree. It was confusing because, like Ali said, no one told us what was happening for two weeks. And when they did tell us, they also didn't tell us that much. They like said maybe a couple sentences. They let our minds wonder, is, is Gavin dead? Is Gavin alive? Is our mom and dad okay? 
Wow, that's really even hard for me to hear, and I wasn't even in the experience. How did you two stick together in this? You're the big sisters, and Allie, you're the oldest. How did that feel for you two as sisters kind of trying to hold on to each other through this? Being honest. Please, <laughs> we yeah. We fought like crazy. I bet. How could you not? Plus your sister. <laughs> yeah, we definitely were, were that pair of younger siblings that <laughs> never stopped bickering. We didn't really have a choice, I guess. My parents were with Gavin, and we didn't get to go see them for weeks. So it was just the two of us. That was like the only stable thing, really. Allie and Kenna were hesitant to participate in this podcast. I was so honored they agreed to chat while we recorded just to see how they felt about talking. As it turned out, they had some very important things to share about their own journeys. Allie, the big sister, had a particular perspective, given her age and awareness at the time of the accident. So on a different day, we sat down and talked a little more. She went through some of the things her mother had saved from that hospital box. Cards, letters, notes to Gavin. It's just stuff from the accident, and my mom went through stuff for, I don't know, I didn't know if she'd done that before, and she kind of just gave it to me. Uh huh. So I was looking through some of it. It's interesting. What was interesting about it from your perspective? Everything I did was focused on Gavin. So that's like school projects uh-huh. and letters. And that's not even all of it. That's just like a small stack. It's a lot. I wrote a lot of stuff. You did. Dear Gavin, I miss you so much with approximately 100 O's <laughs> in one page. And there's a book about him being the best brother in the world. They all say, Gavin, I wish you were here with us. Is pretty yeah. much us being... Ken Ken and I, because obviously my mom wasn't there, said, "Um, I love you, Gavin. I hope you come home soon. You're the best little brother in the whole entire world. It's really great (laughs) spelling. (laughs) Uh, Love, big sissy Allie, which is what he called me. I think I definitely grew up fast. My dad refers to it as a bubble. He says, when you're born, you have this bubble it's like you're naive. Like bad things do not happen to good people or things bad things do not happen for no reason. It's a bubble. And he said, sometimes that bubble doesn't get popped. You can live your whole life and it, it doesn't get popped and you live a great one. And he said that ours got popped at a really young age and that's why we grew up so fast. Once Gavin left the hospital, his sisters accompanied him to almost daily appointments. This routine became an important ritual in their childhoods. Mom would say, we're going to the red chair therapy, and then we're going to blue chair therapy. And we would just remember, like, we didn't, we just sat in there for hours, and then he'd come out, and we wouldn't know anything, and then we'd go to the next therapy, and then it would just be a continuous cycle all through the weeks. So there was the hard red chairs, and then there was the one with the play kitchen that had was that green chairs? Yeah, I think it was like the squishy green chairs. I have no idea what the names of them were, what kind of therapy wow. they were, but I can yeah. tell you exactly what, what kind of chairs, chairs we like. sat in. Yeah. Um, it's definitely not it's the happy not. part of the story. It's right. the it's the part that people don't think about. Like you get off the bus and you would have to jump in the car so we could get there on time and then we'd stay there all evening, go home and then repeat it the next day. 
It's also the smell is kind of nauseating, the smell of hospital waiting rooms and their playrooms and yes. all of that. Every time I smell that smell, it's very, it brings up a lot of triggering. It triggers a lot of yes. stuff. Yeah. I just can't thank you enough for having this conversation because we don't think about that. You know, Gavin's there to get better. We're not thinking about the impact it's having on others unintentionally or not. And the fact that you two are sitting here articulating smells, the color of the chairs, how it felt, that impact certainly was deeply felt by you. I don't know how to phrase this. Um, <laughs> it's the, the small things, I think, that make a difference that I look back on now, reflecting. We had so many little things that, when repetitive, were, were helpful almost. Like every other week, we'd be allowed to go to the vending machine. So slowly, we, we figured out which ones worked and which ones had the best snacks. And which ones don't work and because, give you the default ones. Yeah, yeah like pr- those are the priorities, right? Yes, Is Which yes. vending machines are going to be the best. And then there was a... Which seats are going to be the cushiest. Which yeah, exactly. <laughs> um Mr. Bob is the only guy I remember. He was in a wheelchair, and he held the door for us every time we went to the blue chairs. The blue chairs, <laughs> I don't know yeah. what it was called. Um, every time we went, to, it was at Riley, I think. But Mr. Bob would hold the door, and then he'd high-five all of us, and that was like... Something to look forward to. Yeah. Like you're every... not actually looking forward to going and sitting for hours, uh... but you can look forward to the vending machines or saying hi to Mr. Bob. So, this may not be a fair question, so tell me if not, but if some family is going through that now, what do you wish you would have known? Think about it. I know, it's a hard Um, question. Honesty. Like, gentle honesty. Yeah. Like, there's no need to be brutal with all the details, but I I felt very in the dark. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything. And Kenna didn't know anything, and when I asked, people would tell me, like, We're not talking about that. That's not a nice subject. We're not going to... Oh, I see. So I think honesty is what I would have wanted. It probably would have hurt then, but I would have preferred that. And it depends on the person, but I would have preferred that to to knowing nothing, I think. What about you, Kenna? What do you want them to know that you know now that you didn't know then? It's going to take a long time to actually get better for everything and everyone. It's not just going to magically appear in front of you and you just reach out. You, you have to work for it. When we're fortunate, trauma like this can bring out the helpers in our friends, neighbors, coworkers, and family. But knowing what would be most helpful isn't always clear, and it changes over time. We asked their friends what worked best. Their advice was simple and powerful. Amanda's friend Katie starts us off. Amanda didn't need me to solve her problems because I'm not a doctor. What she didn't need was me like, you know, I read that if you take six things of magnesium, it'll help the blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Like, that's not helpful. But what's helpful is I would let's go walk and you can download everything that you want to say to me, even maybe things that you don't want to say to Brad because you want him to have his space. So let me be that space for you. For Jenny and Jim Toller, Stepping up would lead to a deepening friendship that both families now treasure. I think it evolved pretty naturally. It was just kind of stepping in and saying, hey, what do you need right now? Um, And just trying to take and make something a little easier. And listening. That was the biggest thing. I think just listening, like, 
uh, and will tell me and not pushing them to say, well, what happened? You know, tell me, give me the update of it's just trying to stay as normal as possible or, you know, just keeping it as comfortable where they were. So if we, if they don't want to talk, we didn't really probe. I think Amanda and Brad are pretty tough and kind of try to drive their soldier through things, but then I think you did a good job of offering up, Hey, well, we're just going to bring you dinner or we, we'll take Allie for the afternoon or, or Kenna and Cooper and just take care of that. So you can do X or Y. I think sometimes too, they, Brad and Amanda would be concerned about overloading the people in their friend group from helping out because it's, it's right. It's a marathon. It's not, um, not like a sprint. When Brad and Amanda asked us to do this, we're like, we didn't do anything. We were just there as friends. Yeah. We were just there. You know, we took your dog. We, we brought you food I and mean, we, we didn't really do anything. And those little actions add up more than what we ever will know. I think we need each other, right, as humans to survive uh, just the day to day. And I mean, I love them. They are like my family, right? And so this is what you do for people that you care about. So I tried to go as much as I could to come see them to check on them, to see what I could do because I love them and I wanted them to be supported. And uh, we, we just we just need each other. Longtime friend Jess agreed. It's about being there. In short, show up. You don't ask. You don't ask, what can I do? They don't know. It was just in, like, Gavin's in the hospital. I'm going to get the dog. Like, I didn't ask if I could get the dog. I went and got the dog. We can figure that out later. So figure out what you can do, even if it's bake them cookies or bring them a freezer meal. If you can't go clean their toilet, like just show up, show up and and sit on the couch with them, sit in silence, sit while they cry, cry with them, just do anything. And don't, don't ask. You can't ask. You just have to do it because they don't know what they need. Even if you're uncomfortable, even if you don't know what to say, you don't know what to do, just show up. That's mm-hmm. that's the lesson I would like people to learn from this. Brad also shared what mattered most. My advice to those families who want to help, just do it. And it will have an impact that you want it to have. The most important thing you can do is if you've never told this person how you feel about them, even friend to friend, that you love this friend and that they're important to you and that you're there for them, tell them that. Tell them. Even with all the support, the family began to realize they were in need of a different kind of support. Once Gavin came home, the trauma wasn't over. In many ways, it was only starting. Amanda's therapist, Gloria, explains. So assuring his safety left some separation between her and the girls. And then Brad was making the money. So there's Brad off doing his thing and traveling a whole lot. So everybody having their own little silo, you might say, of how they continue to go about life, Mm -hmm. it's challenging. And, And that continues to be a challenge. I say that because that continues to be a challenge. Absolutely. Well, the the continuing of life and just everyone unpacking their own trauma on top of having more trauma as they continue to go through this together. It feels like, as an outsider, so complex and compounding constantly. 
And I think that's part of what is difficult for someone who hasn't been through trauma or grief to really understand. The family looks good. They have a lovely home. Yeah. They great job. How could this be so difficult? But, but it is. Yes. Yeah. The trauma has now made itself known. It is here, and it is here to stay. Trauma is a threat in their lives now, as Kenna shares. It will always be with you, and once it's over, it's never going to stop. You can't get rid of these feelings, mm -hmm. so you just have to accept them, because you're always going to have the memory, even to when you're really old, that of what happened on that night, mm -hmm. and you're just going to have to kind of work through it. And you don't really get to choose if I want to remember the good parts or the bad parts. You, you just remember both of them. What Kenna is describing is the hard part, the suck part of trauma and of life. Holding dark and light in ways that will allow you to choose to create a new foundation. What they didn't know was that the breaking was the beginning of their salvation as individuals, as a family. The beginning of the after the accident chapter, and what would make this not only the beginning of Gavin's miraculous recovery, but of their own miraculous recovery. It embodies the power of my favorite passage written by Cynthia Ocelli. For a seed to achieve its greatest expression, it must come completely undone. The shell cracks, its insides come out, and everything changes. To someone who doesn't understand growth, it would look like complete destruction. In our next episode, the trauma pushes the Swearingen family to choose their own growth. The choice starts in the form of help and healing from various sources. Obviously, no family would choose this trauma. This family sure did not choose it. But what they chose for themselves because of it is resilience. Resilience in ways most of us will never understand. This has been episode two of Threads Unseen, Unraveling a Story of Trauma. This podcast is produced by Bloombase. Foundational to our work in coaching and in any space of development and growth is a vein of curiosity. We see in our work and in this story how curiosity invites empathy and unlocks deeper connection with one another. I hope as you embark on this journey with us, you keep that frame of curiosity with you. Consider for yourself, what am I learning through this? What is impacting me as I hear this? How do I want to use this as my own learning? How might it shift how I show up in all the spaces I lead? Whether it's at the grocery store, at home or at work, with parents or kids, friends or colleagues, with strangers on the street, how can I take all the wisdom and love this family is sharing with me and change, change the world, use it to change the world around us? At Bloombase, our coaching approach channels deep listening and curiosity to help clients develop new mindsets and perspectives. Growth happens in hard spaces, and deep growth happens in relationships where there is a partner with you in those hard spaces. Our coaching partnerships result in high-performing, emotionally intelligent leaders whose growth and impact continues to ripple long after they have left our engagement. Learn more at thisisbloombase.com.